0: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapun. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. My guest today is Richard Berner, the superintendent at Graded, most commonly referred to as Graded School, which is the American School of Sao Paulo, Brazil. For the past 30 plus years, Richard has held a variety of administrative and teaching positions in an array of international and US educational settings. Before graded, he was director and middle and high school principal at Korea International School. Richard holds a Master of Arts in Educational Administration from Central Washington University. At Graded, Richard launched the Graded Learning Lab, Advancing Education Beyond Boundaries. The Learning Lab provides innovative instruction in deeper learning, embedding the science of learning in everyday practice. Richard received the 2023 Association for the Advancement of International Education, Dr. Keith Miller International Innovation Leadership Award for leading graded's efforts in the systematic implementation of deeper learning. The award, established in 2006, is conferred annually by AAIE to one individual who has contributed significantly to both international education and the association. American International Schools in the Americas Executive Director, Derek Rhodes, presented the award to Superintendent Berner at the organization's annual business meeting, citing his impactful leadership and generosity of spirit and time. Quote, you have rolled up your sleeves and found ways to keep us all learning, Dr. Rhodes said to Mr. Berner, You have shared resources that have impacted students and adults throughout the world, not only in your region. Your think tank and resulting work around the science of learning is a shining example of the type of collaborative and inspiring leadership we seek to celebrate." In response to the announcement, Graded Board President Alex Malfitani expressed, quote, having had the privilege of working closely with Richard for the past year, I have witnessed firsthand his dedication to our children's education. This is also a recognition of Graded among American schools in the region, end quote. Graded opened in October, 1920, and has grown into the modern, multi-dimensional campus it is today. In Graded's Deeper Learning Playbook, I read the following, Learners enter into learning environments and experiences already possessing knowledge, skills, and beliefs acquired through their experiences, cultures, and languages. New learning is filtered through and built upon this knowledge, these skills, or these beliefs, all of which can impact learning in a variety of ways. One parent said of Graded, You will not regret a day at this school it is the best school anywhere. The level of education and educational experiences is far greater than any other school I've ever come across," end quote. High praise indeed. And after a couple of weeks of preparing for this interview, I could not agree more. A colleague of Richard's, international school thought leader, Robert Landau, said the following about Graded and Richard for this episode. Quote, the graded school's vision statement, individuals empowered to reach their potential and positively impact the world, speaks accurately and appropriately to the sum total of Richard's career. As a fellow international educator and futurist, and through many encounters with him at conferences and meetings, I have greatly admired Richard's accomplishments. The graded school has always pushed boundaries. I believe because the school continues to select the cream of the crop among the best progressive leaders in the world. Richard has consistently earned my respect and admiration as a fearless leader. It's wonderful to see a fellow international school leader on this podcast. I look forward to hearing what is current and fresh in Richard's magnificent mind. End quote. During a Yale University seminar called Schooling As If Learning Mattered, moderated by Javier Arqueo, a Yale School of Management graduate, Mr. Arqueo asked Richard, and I paraphrase, why does a school that has so many young people trying to get in, all of them assuming they are applying to a top international school that has succeeded so well in terms of the traditional paths of learning, take on such a risky move to transform whole-scale towards deeper learning, towards learner-centered practices? Listeners, keep this essential question in mind over the next hour. And now, here's my conversation with GRADED's Richard Berner. Richard, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So listeners, I want to share here at the start that of the 115 episodes of this show, this episode was the most painful in terms of paring down what felt like 100 questions for my guest to just a manageable number that would fit our one-hour format. Richard's and graded story really put me to the test in terms of what ended up on the cutting room floor. I really hope I made the right choices. So let's dive in, Richard. So you shared with me a story about growing up and going to school that reads like a spy or thriller novel with lots of surprising twists and turns. And into the mix is the future Farmers of America, which totally caught me by surprise. A time when, while living in a predominantly black neighborhood in Seattle, you were bused to a white school, which is the reverse, and a surprise moment in a college of education when you discovered, well, I don't want to spoil the story. So how did you, in your remarkable maze of experiences growing up and in interactions with this thing we call school, find your way to a somewhat surprising passion for the way we learn.
1: Well, it
0: began with
1: an introspective look as I got older about how I couldn't learn or how I was, say less effective at learning than many of my peers. I was not a traditional academic child in the sense that learning came to me easy. Things didn't make sense to me in the ways that it did for other kids sometimes. And I knew I was plenty capable but I couldn't demonstrate it in the ways that school was traditionally asking. Mm-hmm. And so as I began to evolve my understandings of myself as a learner and make sense of that in my adult years, it really struck me that the way in which school was designed didn't necessarily work for a lot of kids and certainly didn't work for
0: me that well. And so how did the Future Farmers of America experience figure into this journey of yours? Like what? I can only imagine, Richard, that in terms of something that here in Hawaii where I'm based, we call makahana ka ike, or in doing one learns, that might have been one of those moments where you really started to figure out what that actually means in terms of doing and learning. It absolutely did. You know, I was in a city kid my whole life growing up until ninth
1: grade, and then my parents made a job change. And I think also they made a change to find a new place for me to grow. And recognizing that for a variety of different reasons, academics and otherwise, the city life wasn't helping me thrive. And so we moved out to a small rural community, and my parents bought a 13 acre farm and we began to raise sheep. And they said, Well, you got to figure out how to raise these animals. So you should take one of these things they call agriculture classes. And my father actually had a similar story. He grew up in Mm -hmm. inner city Chicago and moved out to a rural community and joined the FFA. So Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the organization. And so as I entered, I began to see a way of schooling that I hadn't had exposure to in the city where you use your hands and you use a lot of thinking and you design and create and build your experience. And for me, it was the first time in school that light started to shine brightly about the way in which I could demonstrate my learning Mm -hmm. and how much motivation that created for me and synergy around other ideas that I hadn't been able to uncover.
0: Mm, wow. You know, it's so interesting, Richard, because uh, although I wasn't a member of the Future Farmers of America, my family is deeply invested in farming. They have been for more than 50 years here on the island of Oahu and Hawaii. And it really resonated with me reading about your experiences. I wasn't a farmer. I sort of refer to myself, Richard, as the non-dirt rapoon. I'm the one person who lives in that concrete world. But I did grow up working with my brothers to help them as they first got started farming. And so I hear you about that. There's so many things that you have to do. And when you do them, you have to think your way through how to do them. So that leads me to you know a follow-up question before we get into Graded itself. So Richard, I know this sounds crazy to ask this, but what does it mean to be anything? Like, what does it mean to be a learner? What does it mean to pick up, which is Graded's words, the science of learning, almost like one picks up a wrench and starts tightening a lug nut, if you know what I mean. I do. We describe it in the sense of a
1: toolkit. And so if I was on the job site and I needed to be able to successfully navigate a variety of tasks, let's say I am a carpenter. Mm -hmm. In my tool belt, I've got a variety of different tools. And one, I need to know when to select which tool. I need to know how to use that tool effectively and then when things don't go right i need to know how to adapt maybe provide another tool or use that tool in a unique different way and so we think of that in the sense of learning if i've got a set of tools in my tool belt as a learner and i come across something that i'm unsure or unclear about so which tool do i begin to use and why would i choose to use that tool and strategy and then how do i apply it and utilize it I didn't have those tools growing up as a child. And in fact, I argue many students don't. And so we leave them with this kind of limited toolkit or some materials, some tools, Mm. and then they struggle. And what we're trying to do is provide a rich array of tools that students can use at their disposal themselves. So they become much more self-directed in
0: their learning. Mm. Yeah. You know, with previous guests, I've articulated a number of times that I lived two completely separate lives growing up. One was the life with my family, which involved a lot of farming, a lot of sailing, a lot of building of rock walls, all kinds of stuff. And then there was the life that I lived at school in middle school and high school. and the previous life or the or the other life, the form the one I was just talking about with my family was all about doing and the life in high school was not at all about doing. It was about just sitting and waiting for information to come in. So Richard, that's a perfect segue into our, you know, real dig in here on graded. So let's really dig into the loamy and organic soil graded teachers and learners grow in. And you recently received the Dr. Keith Miller International Innovation Leadership Award, and I loved your acceptance speech and would like to do a lightning round based on your award remarks. So I will prompt you and you provide brief on point responses to each prompt. Does that sound good? Sounds wonderful. Awesome. Okay. So number one, what was the theory of change you established at Graded in 2019 when you came on board that guided you and your campus forward into deeper learning? It began with the
1: idea that if we wanted students to have a more deep, enduring, and transferable learning experience, and we wanted them to demonstrate that in unique and novel ways that it first had to start in a reverse order. So first, the leadership had to develop a system and an approach of how and which students would be able to demonstrate that. Mm. That began a design of courses, instructional materials, resources, training, so that faculty could begin to learn how to do this as well. To make the assumption that educators know how to get students to learn more effectively and deeply may not be a fair assumption. So we began to teach our teachers. After we build a series of courses for those individuals to work through and guide through, we would then have them go into the classroom and practice those skills. Mm -hmm. Then after they practice the skills, we would walk with them through the growth of that. Then they would start to transfer that to students. Mm -hmm. And we would watch that maturation process happen. And then eventually, once we had taught students, we wanted to see if students could use those science learning strategies effectively in their learning And then we begin to measure the effectiveness of their use of it, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Mm. So again, starting from the leadership all the way through the system until we got students in a space to begin to use
0: these skills. Got it. Okay, so number two, what are the characteristics, Richard, of a graded learner and who helped design them? The characteristics of a graded
1: learner are, I am curious, I am creative, I am collaborative, I am driven, and I am ethical. And they were really co-collaborated and created during the Deeper Learning Foundations course. So as we were building out and and instructing the entire faculty on the first really deep dive study of the science of learning, these were the kinds of attributes that kept highlighting and being focused by faculty around how we could get the movement to happen with, with students. And so we began from that to then design those characteristics. So where some people will design a, say, profile of a graduate and then work backwards. We used the process and the evolution of the learning that teachers were going through to help co-create the graded characteristics of a learner.
0: Mm, Got it. Understood. So then, what is the graded learning lab, and when did it come about, and what is the assumption about faculty learning embedded within it? The learning lab was
1: created about six months after we launched the Deeper Learning project, Mm -hmm. mostly because we needed a space dedicated to all the professional training we were about to undertake. We had limited resources on our campus. And so we we had an empty piece of of land and we used containers to redesign or to build a learning space Mm -hmm. specifically designed around teacher training. And so the space is uh, inspirational in many ways, and that it is kind of a beacon or a center point, if you will, for teachers to gather, to learn, to grow together. All of our deeper learning coaches, our coordinators and leadership team from the teaching learning department are all housed within the space. And so teachers can go there at any time, along with their scheduled course time to build on their teacher and learning strategy. So it was an inspirational space as as much as it was just a space that we needed to dedicate
0: for the training. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started into my prep, Richard, a couple of weeks ago, and I was just sort of like in that chaotic moment when you're trying to organize everything that you provided for me, the image, the photograph of that lab was one of the first things that I saw and my reaction was, whoa, that looks really cool. And so that was a great start to the process. So, all right, number four, what is the deeper learning instructional playbook? So we designed a playbook
1: that allows teachers to take what they've learned and then have it essentially serve as a repository. Mm. So they're built around our learning principles. We have six learning principles that emphasize the deeper learning strategies, agency, processes, mastery, collaboration, transfer and authenticity, prior knowledge and experience, and then conceptual organization and knowledge. And in each of those areas, as you dive through the playbook, it gives you resources, it gives you anchor information, research around those strategies. And then it also gives actual tools for you to use in the classroom, Hmm. strategies and approaches. So as I'm thinking about, okay, I want to work with my students on their agency. How might I do that? Well, I've gone through the training, but again, I don't retain everything as all learners don't, so it becomes a place they can go to and pull strategies and then use those in their classroom experiences. Wow, that's awesome.
0: How did teacher evaluation change as a result of Graded's embrace of deeper learning and then the embarkation of that journey on mooring from the dock and setting sail towards that north star of deeper learning? It's actually been
1: one of the last things that we made change to, and it was really based on the feedback of teachers. And teachers were sharing and reporting that if they've made all these types of transformations and how in which they learn and what the evidence they're looking for from students is different now, the evaluation system and the feedback system doesn't match it anymore. And so we agreed. Hmm. teaching and learning department gathered a group of faculty to help redesign and recreate what is now called a professional growth and feedback model. Hmm. And within that, there's a variety of important features. One is that one of the evaluative processes is the experience of a collaborative team inquiry that faculty go through as they work on a problem of practice through the lens of these various learning principles. And then importantly, peer feedback is a part of the process and student feedback. Hmm. We're a culture of feedback school. We want as much rich information to feed into and inform us about our, our teaching practices. So those really were generative changes to what is a traditional, I walk into a classroom, I evaluate what I see of the teacher. We're interested in a lot more about how the teaching process occurs and the lived experience of students
0: happens in the classroom. I wonder if you could just, side tangent here for a second, if you could just briefly explain how the feedback mechanism with students works. How how does, you know, because I've, Oh boy, 17 years in in teaching, Richard, there have been some some real nightmare moments in terms of soliciting student feedback about teachers, which did not go well.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. In sincerity, it's a it's a wondering that we have as we're going through the first year of our of our new professional growth and feedback model. We ask students to give candor in their responses. And so the survey tool that we've developed and are in, actually still in development. Mm. has a series of set questions for all teachers, and then teachers add an additional level of questions that they want, specific feedback that might be unique from one teacher to another. Mm. And we ask students to give their honest candor about how they feel about their learning. That gets at that individual teacher feedback. The other way in which we've used feedback from students around the entirety of the deeper learning process is we use a concept called fish bowls, mm. where we use students to sit in the center of a circle and have a conversation with themselves without talking directly to the teachers about their learning experience. And Mm. then the teachers sit on the outside and listen in. Mm. And then after about 20 minutes or so, we flip the experience and we invite teachers to sit in the circle and talk about what they heard. Mm. Then finally, at the end of that, after another 20 minutes has gone by, we ask the students to come back into the circle and correct their record. Mm. What did the teachers get right about what they understood and what didn't they clarify or needed to clarify further? That ability to watch and listen to students talk about learning Mm-hmm. and talk about the importance of what they value in the learning experience is really, really powerful
0: for teachers. Wow. I, I love a beautifully designed fishbowl, Richard. That's awesome. Wow. Really interesting. Okay. So how did you determine the efficacy, the effectiveness of your design for deeper learning training? And how did you know all this work was impacting students, like how did you gather the evidence and what was the evidence that you were looking for that this was impacting students? That is the ultimate question
1: and, <laughs> and I think the most important question and arguably one of the hardest ones to answer yeah and we're still collecting data to this day and we'll continue to We look at data I think in, in, in many places do in, in two ways: qualitative data and quantitative data and learning is a, a very cerebral, emotional experience. And the depth in which somebody learns the traditional way in which we assess that is is we test. And then we score that test. And then we rank those students based on their performance. And maybe we even look at growth over time. Mm. But most assessments are really looking at knowledge. What do you know? And how can you demonstrate what you know? And it is important to know things. But how do you get at the more subtle aspects of How can one problem solve? How can one demonstrate critical thinking in very thoughtful ways? So for us, we really looked at metacognition as a way to measure a student's ability to think about their thinking. Mm. And there's a variety of tools, one called the Junior Metacognitive Awareness Inventory that we use with students. And we've used it in a variety of ways. In fact, we're giving the assessment again, uh, as we do regularly next week at graded, and we ask students to take the survey prior to any training in the deeper learning from teachers. And then we measured in dosage groups that as students have been exposed to more teachers that had used, had been through the deeper learning training, did we see their metacognitive awareness ability increase? Mm -hmm. And in fact, we did start to see some of that and specifically saw it also in our teachers as we gave them an adult version of the assessment. Mm -hmm. So we're really looking at the qualitative ways in which students and and even our faculty can demonstrate the actual strategies. And then we're looking at some quantitative things as well. One of those is done through a partnership with an organization called WestEd, and mm-hmm. they are our research partner. Hmm. And they've developed with us a observation tool where we can collect data of evidence of science of learning and deeper learning strategies being deployed by students. So we're really watching student learning, not teacher instruction, mm. and then trying to measure and calibrate how effective are students at using the different strategies
0: that they've been taught. Mm, got it. Got it. Understood. So, Richard, left turn prompt here. How did you get Graded's board of directors or trustees on board this remarkable odyssey?
1: Well, the first thing we did, we needed to, before we even made the decision that we wanted to be a deeper learning school, we knew we wanted to make a pivot. We knew we had a really good school, but we knew that we wanted students to learn in more sophisticated ways. And so we hosted a think tank in early 2019, Mm -hmm. and we invited really luminary education partners from around the world to come and join us at Graded and question us around our strategies our approaches and what the future of learning could look like at our school but importantly to that partnership we invited students we invited faculty we invited board members to sit in and co-create the future of learning at graded and over a two-day period of deep deep discussion and dialogue this construct of deeper learning and how it could look like in a systemically developed way k through 12 began to take shape Mm. so having those board members present in that process i think gave them a sense of understanding Mm. and also some validation from the outside looking inward at what learning could look like and what our industry and agencies and organizations and and universities looking for in learners in the future Mm. so from that we went to the full board and had a variety of conversations about how to make this move and what the resources would take to do that. And they've been wonderfully supportive ever since.
0: Mm. And listeners, I will include in the show notes an absolutely marvelous 16-minute video on YouTube at Graded's channel that provides a, a beautiful window into that process. I'm so glad, Richard, that you documented that with that film, That uh, your, your think tank, because It really is a tool in and of itself for anyone who's contemplating this type of a journey. So I'll include that in the show notes. So finally, Richard, maybe the concept I am most curious about, in what ways did you bring the vast years of life experiences of your faculty, staff, and students into the process of training for deeper learning? So for example... I was a chef and a hotel manager before I became a teacher. So let's say I joined Graded in 2019 as a faculty member. And just as you were all starting down this pathway, how would my experiences have mattered or figured into the process?
1: Every teacher, whether they are, you know, five years into the craft or 25 years into the craft have a variety of experiences. And those experiences add value to their sophistication and understanding of how students learn and what strategies work and didn't work in their different lessons. All of that is worthwhile. What we helped teachers to understand was that there's a language to the science of learning, and there's a series of strategies and approaches that are more effective, perhaps, than others. Mm. So we wanted ourselves, me included, to suspend our assumptions about what we thought worked and look through the lens of research to find out what the evidence of high quality learning looks like. And so we asked for a willingness. We were very honest about the pivot and the change we wanted to make. We story told from the sense of what we hoped the future could look like. And then we began to provide support and training, most importantly. When we knew we were going to make such a big shift in the focus around teacher training Mm. was the development of this first course, the Deeper Learning Foundations course, which was essentially, we call it our nine-week micro-sabbatical. And for a period of nine days of those nine weeks, teachers were pulled out of classrooms. And then intermixed with that was coaching and peer review of their work in the classroom and then practicing the strategies. We knew we needed to give time and we needed to give committed time in valuable ways so that teachers could have the space to uptake all of this new learning. Mm. Now, understanding these are teachers that are working full-time many, many, many hours into the evenings, as as all teachers do, and then asking themselves to go about a whole new deeper learning journey at Mm. the same time. My hats are off to our faculty for their positivity, their effort, motivation, engagement, and their implementation has just been, it's been really
0: really rewarding and inspiring. Wow. Amazing. So Richard, I'm going to squeeze one more in here before we go to our first break. So if I were to fly to Brazil to do an R and D site visit on your campus, specifically to see the rejection of the one size fits all and the Todd Rose myth of the average, where on your campus would you take me first? And what would you want me to see? Wow i'd want you to see everything
1: all at once (laughs) there's so many (laughs) wonderful places i would take you take you into a high school math classroom Mm. and i'd have you watch math happen without seats yeah students are on boards standing up in groups collaborating thinking problem solving analyzing debating arguing around the strategies and approaches to solve math problems those kinds of shifts are part of the evidence, I think, and the change that teachers have gone through in how they've began to approach learning in a new and, more, I believe, much more impactful way. Mm-hmm. There are so many other places on campus that would be fun to have you see and and view that would, would show you that same kind of energy and, and enthusiasm in the way in which
0: students are learning. You know, that may have been the most perfect possible response, Richard, because for my listeners who've been with me through these 115 episodes, they all know how terrible my experiences were with math in middle and high school. And I I, I seriously, I'm not joking. It's almost like PTSD. And so that was perfect that you took me in there because almost immediately I could visualize that. And I love the idea that what you were really doing there was making math an inclusive thing, rather than a moment where I was possibly going to be sorted in some way, and then if I couldn't do the math, if I wasn't good at the math, I was going to be just sort of routed in some sort of other direction. Does that make sense? Like, does that is that clear about how I would have seen that as I came into the room?
1: Absolutely. No, it resonates very well with me. And for my own self as a math student and a, and a learner, I feel for you because I felt the same way. Yeah. You would take the math test, you wouldn't perform well, you know where you stood, and then you just move on. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the chance to talk to other people about my math. Yeah. What didn't make sense? What made sense? There was one teacher, there were, you know, at that time, 35 kids in the classroom. How was I going to have my voice heard? And especially if I'm not comfortable and confident in my learning, I'm less likely to to reach up and and ask for help anyways. And so this I think provides a real powerful way we can demonstrate how students who may not feel the confidence of engaging in learning in the same way have a much safer place to do
0: it. Yeah, that's awesome. So hey everyone, we've been talking with Richard Berner, the superintendent at Graded, more commonly known or more formally known as the American School of Sao Paulo. If you love the What School Could Be podcast, please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Stay with us, we will be right back. Hi, fellow educators, I'm Steve Shapiro, and like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from Ed. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be Educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the Entre Ed Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Hey everyone, we've been talking with Richard Berner, the superintendent and graded, which over the last four plus years has moved towards being a place of tremendously deeper learning. So Richard, I really struggled to develop the following question, so bear with me. My former guests know that I like to talk about feelings in part because feelings seem to be mostly left out of teacher professional development, not to mention classrooms. So there is this moment in 2018-2019 when your graded board realizes that things are going a bit off the rails, for lack of a better term, and they hire you. You schedule the 2019 think tank, which you've already talked about, You launch the science of learning approach. The graded learning lab is developed and the good ship graded unmoors from the dock and sets sail towards a deeper learning new world. And I wonder what your faculty and staff were feeling during these months into years. I I imagine a range of emotions that changed and shifted over time. And I wonder, did you have moments where one or more faculty objected or even refused to go along, and and how did you deal with those emotions, both positive and negative, if you will, as a superintendent and as sort of the the leader of your community? Importantly,
1: I actually started grade in two thousand fifteen, and so I'd been there about three years as uh-huh. we moved into this transition. So, okay. just as a note, and. We accepted and understood that we were taking our faculty through an enormous transformation and asking them to do more with essentially the same amount of time. We were very honest about that. We were deeply committed to this work. We described, I think, thoughtfully what we were trying to achieve, why we were trying to achieve it. And I think they understood conceptually and valued the investment that we were making in them. But there's a lot of energy that goes into that change that happens after the emotional excitement of like, wow, we're going to become this really interesting school. We're going to use these strategies. And so it's not just an immediate like encouragement that has to happen. This is an ongoing process of support Mm -hmm. and iterative growth with the faculty. And not everything we tried worked. One of the things that the teaching and learning team did really, really well throughout the process was surveying faculty to get their feedback. And in fact, in the foundations course, they would survey them at the end of every day, and then they would put their results up directly on the screens the very next morning and own the feedback. And Mm -hmm. some of the feedback was quite critical. And the coaches would own that feedback, listen, and then give clarity, and then make adaptations and changes. Mm -hmm. So the courses and the training was quite dynamic based on the needs of the teachers. Primarily because we had never trained teachers to do this before. We were building the plane in the the sky as it's flying, as you will. We didn't have the materials. The curriculum wasn't pre-built. And so we were piloting everything as we went along. And we did hold two pilot courses in the very beginning before we ever launched the final product. And we used those beta teachers to really give us a tremendous sense of, of guidance and feedback about what they liked about the experience, what they didn't like about the experience. Mm. But ultimately, there were, there were people that questioned the value of this, the amount of time and intentionality that this would take, comparative to working on what they had historically been doing. And arguably, Graded's been a successful school for over 100 years. We were doing well or by all, all traditional measures. Right. Things were going well. And so there's a natural assumption for some to say, why make a change at all? Mm. I would argue that when you're doing well is the absolute time to make change because you have capacity.
0: Mm. So, Richard, I I watched a number of videos that you provided for me of faculty sitting in feedback sessions. There was a post-Think Tank session and a number of other videos that I watched as well. And and it just seems to me that, is it fair to say that a culture of feedback, and, and what you're describing as a culture of sometimes very immediate feedback, And also a culture of belonging and a culture when I bring my experiences to the table, you know, I belong and I feel heard and I'm part of this journey that all of that put together in some ways mitigates the excessive emotions that happen during a period of transformation in a really positive way. Like, does that sound right Mm -hmm. to you? Does Mm -hmm. that sound fair?
1: It does. It does. I I I think clarity is really, really critical in the change process. Yeah. Yeah. People need to know... Where they're going, yeah. as much as they need to know why they're going there, and so we wanted to be sure to try to paint a picture, a, a landscape of what the change could look like and would look like later on, even though we hadn't designed it all out. And there was some criticism about well, where where we where are we going? How how do you know that that's that's where we're going to end up? Mm. And we didn't always, but we tried to, to be as clear as possible and as honest as possible about what we were asking of people. I think that gave faculty, administrators the ability to trust mm. that the process was going to be worthwhile, that it was going to be thoughtfully developed, that it was going to be professional development in a way that teachers hadn't experienced before, something that actually is a value that they're going to use. Mm. And that, I think it paid off
0: and it worked. Yeah. There've been a number of episodes where guests have talked about moving at the speed of trust, which mm. is, is not, you know, it's, it's not fast, it's not slow. It's actually just determined by how much trust you're building as you go along. I love that. Yeah, and it sounds like that's something that you're going through. Okay, so Richard, as part of your Clingston Heads Fellowship Program at Columbia, you wrote a paper which you shared with me titled, The Center, The Child. And in this paper, which is essentially an expression of your evolving philosophy of education, you talk about the roundness of a child's education, but I wanna come at your philosophy of education from a slightly different direction. So via a couple of sentences in the paper that really jumped out at me. So you wrote, and I quote, "'The roundness of a child's education is central to many of our common struggles at schools, as it at times flies in the face of the results-oriented mindset of parents. They are hell-bent on outcomes seeking the next rung of the ladder. We must resist this singular approach in our schools." End quote. So your words, Richard, are almost Don Quixote-esque in their imagery, as if you were standing at the gates protecting Graded's roundness philosophy against parents hell-bent on something entirely different. And so there there are lots of folks who have spoken or written very eloquently about parents being one of the obstacles to deeper learning, but I wanna ask it a different way. I wonder if you can elaborate on what you wrote, and maybe another way to come at this is to wonder how we both prevent parents from turning back the clock once the journey has begun, while simultaneously enrolling them as partners in progress.
1: question. I think it's important and fair to say that, you know, because I was a parent to children as well, and an educator, that what we want for our children is a multitude of things. We want them to be happy, healthy, educated, and knowledgeable, but we want them to have opportunity. And I think we are in a debate in our society about what is the way in which you gain opportunity. And for some, it's an argument of scores and, and rankings and numbers so that I can climb a ladder to get to a certain space so I can get access to a certain thing. And I think the the challenge with that is that while that is true in the traditional sense of how I get admitted to a university, it has probably little to do with my ability to actually affect change in my life if I haven't learned the really fundamental ways to be a thoughtful, educated, evolved, well-rounded human being. Hmm. And so we have a duty in schools to ensure that the young people we develop and turn out into the world don't just climb a ladder to get ahead of whatever is the next barrier to the next set of achievement to get into the next accessible school that they want to. It's that they have this depth to them that when they are there that they do something of meaning and purpose and worth no matter what that is mm-hmm. that they and they get to choose that and so i think i think parents want that i really do i think the challenge is, is that the race to access is so challenging and specifically i'm speaking around college admissions right the process is as much as it's holistic in its nature in the united states it's wildly, wildly ineffective in my assumption at really picking all the great kids. Right. There are so many talented kids that can demonstrate their, their abilities in, in unique and novel ways. that are never measured by the traditional ways in which colleges consider a student. So I think there's lots of effort to reform that. A mastery transcript consortium is one and others. But I think from a parent to kind of school tension piece there, It's not a tension that they don't want those things. It's a tension that they also know that there's this result that students have to achieve to get into the next place. And I acknowledge that that exists, Mm. but I think we can do it both. And that's been the commitment I've made to our families is we'll have your children ready, but we'll have them thoughtful. Yeah. And well-developed and well-rounded as a human being. So when they do get into those wonderful schools, they're doing something of real meaning.
0: Yeah. You know, Richard, my, my 99th episode was with Annie Evans, who's a remarkable educator in Virginia. And that's really an understatement. What she's doing in history and digital history and mapping and all of that is just... Unbelievable. And I was in a session with her yesterday, a a discussion group, and she remarked that every time she gets a new set of students, she goes down that emergency contact list not because she's looking to see who their emergency contacts are, but she wants to know what the parents actually do. And when there's a moment where she can enroll that parent in the process of learning, (laughs) you know, if they're a business person or a nonprofit, if they work at a nonprofit or own a business or something like that, she's out there recruiting them into the process of learning. And I thought, what a marvelously practical way of including parents as partners. And once they're partners and they're on board, then maybe they're, your greatest allies. And that's probably true for graded, right? I mean, I, I found a comment online by one of your parents that said, graded is the greatest school on planet Earth. And so that parent is clearly enrolled in your journey. Absolutely. And,
1: you know, not every family feels and sees and experiences school the same way. And I want that statement to be true for every family at our school. And I know And it's not, you know, we are no perfect panacea of an institution. We're a school and and we're messy, just like all of all schools are. But I think that is it's an important
0: consideration. Having parents as partners is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So one more part of this conversation before we go to our second break, Richard. I want to talk about, and this would be somewhat of a first on this podcast something called educational malpractice. And I was sparked to this by a slide in, in your slide deck that I think you used when you gave your acceptance speech for the award that you won. I never want to alienate listeners, but I'm reaching a point just shy of my 65th birthday when it's sort of time to say effort it and say what I think needs to be said. So it turns out maybe you're thinking along the same line. So I believe here in 2023, most so-called traditional schools are committing some form of educational malpractice. If we dissolved the idea of education in every human mind and started from scratch, and this includes knocking down all the penitentiary style school buildings, we would surely not build the system we have today, which was created in the late 1800s. So I wanna imagine with you, oh boy, a class action suit filed by students and educators against I don't know who, claiming educational malpractice and in some ways this feels like a civil rights case i i even want reparations paid for the fact that education leaders have known for decades the damage that they were doing by sticking with an obsolete system of teaching and learning you know that oftentimes puts kids under extreme stress and we're seeing that today so richard help me out either talk me off the ledge or push me or jump with me, or recommend an anger management therapist for me. I don't know what. I wonder what you're thinking. Oh my! Well, I'm I'm not going to let you jump. <laughs> okay, thank I have you. hope and I have faith
1: that that the moves that we're making in schools are going to help reform it in its own way. But it's too slow and it's not well enough evolved, and there's not a lot of will. It, again, it, it speaks to the change process. I hear often in schools. So, yeah, we should be innovative and change, but, but not with my kid because we're dealing with live learning in the moment. So any change we make is having direct impact immediately. We, we can't work in, a, in an offsite lab condition with a lab student and then implement the successful change and then bring it into schooling. Mm. So I get why there's such a tension and a fear to transform education. The other thing is, is that everybody went to school. and so they have a sense of what schooling is about and for many of us that grew up in the days that that we did school was okay it worked to get us the jobs that we need and the things that we have but the world is radically different now and the the speed of transformation and speed of change is accelerating exponentially so yet education cannot maintain itself in its or in its traditional sense and be relative Mm. to what we are needing in our society I think relevance is the key term here okay how are we being relevant in the way in which students can learn and and i did i I wrote that if we in fact knew that there was a way in which students could learn more effectively with more permanency and that that learning could be transferred in unique and novel ways and we didn't choose to do that isn't that malpractice Mm -hmm. we have a responsibility to use research and education to transform Learning experiences. And we know the research is there. And we know the evidence of that research, when used, is impactful. Mm. So I think we have to challenge ourselves as educators to push ourselves, to hold ourselves accountable to what can be and what should be in schools. And that's hard because there's tension against the system from a variety of factors in schools, parents, especially in private schools where people are choosing schools. They want to know a known product, they want a comfortable, safe experience. And They don't want a beta tested school so you Mm. have to ensure that the the change you're making is evidence based that it can work
0: Mm. so follow-up question before we go to break that's so interesting richard like how does your at a very practical level how does graded your whole community everybody how do you continually revisit that thought that you just expressed about keeping yourselves relevant and the science of learning like what are the actual besides besides the learning lab are there mechanisms that you have in place that keep bringing everybody sort of back to that north star and make people feel like the community is continually making itself relevant day in and day out even hour by hour
1: well there's a couple of things that we approach importantly to sustain the momentum of the work. Mm. One is obviously every year we have new faculty joining us. Right. And we have new parents joining us. And they may have some sense that this work exists, but they may not have a complete understanding. Certainly for faculty, they haven't been through the coursework. So they go through a sprint process and get caught up as quickly as possible. In fact, many of our new teachers have been in the lab in the last few days, weeks, going through their foundation's course training. Mm -hmm. So they can be upskilled on the strategies and approaches. One of the essential agreements with the board was that we would ensure that this would live on and be effectively implemented over time, knowing that an international school has a changing population. And then the, the latter being the parents. Each year at the beginning of the year, the the chief learning officer and I present to our our new parents and we discuss the transformation we went through. Mm -hmm. We show them the think tank video. We talk about the change we're making and the focus on learning and how it's going to look like. And then we ask families to pay attention to that in their children. Mm -hmm. And what families who have been in the school for a period of time will say now is that when their students come home and describe their learning, they describe it differently than they used to. The vocabulary, the language, the depth of understanding, the way that they articulate how they're demonstrating their learning and what they're doing to demonstrate their learning has changed.
0: Mm. So fair to say that it's almost like, I don't know, the Brazilian soccer team experiences some turnovers, some players are traded, others retire, new players come on board, and the whole team rolls up its sleeves and says, you know, here we go, let's bring them on board and let's get them part of this community. Is that a fair way of looking at it? I hope so. I hope so. But I believe it is, yes. Yeah. Which means some level of excitement about it. Like, oh god, here we go again, new people. It's actually something much more positive than that. Wow. Wow. That's, that's like super interesting.
1: I think so, and I think also it's important to note that when faculty are selecting our school, one of the considerations is the work we're doing is something they want
0: to be trained in. Right. Right. Exactly. So, hey, everyone. We have been talking with Richard Berner, the superintendent at the American School of Sao Paulo, known as GRADED. Stay with us. We will be right back to talk about what leadership could be, good ancestors, and a special person named Craig Nelson. Stay with us. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unr.
1: ULR.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nover as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds
0: podcast. Hey everyone, we've been talking with Richard Berner, the superintendent at Graded. Richard received the 2023 Association for the Advancement of International Education Dr. Keith Miller International Innovation Leadership Award for Leading graded Efforts in the Systematic Implementation of Deeper Learning. So Richard, in the middle of an awesome video about your 2019 think tank, which I referenced before, Dr. Vince Burtman, I think I'm saying his name correctly, of Project Lead the Way, one of your invited thinkers, I presume said something that kind of stopped me in my tracks and he states and i paraphrase one thing i am unclear on is what are the non-negotiables and i was like wow that's a question so richard here in 2023 with so much water already under the bridge now five years past your think tank what are the graded non-negotiables today well one would be that all students will be deeper learners
1: Mm. that they will be able to endure in their learning, that they will be able to transfer their learning in meaningful ways. And they'll do that through the lens of mastery, identity, and creativity. Mm. And those intersection points and the strategies they use to get there will make them more sophisticated in their learning and more available to use that in their live life. Mm. To me, that non-negotiable is that we want young people To be successful adults and in order to do that that toolkit has to be full Mm. and so one of the non-negotiables is that toolkit has to be full that includes knowing things it's not just about the way you demonstrate what you
0: know but you have to have a depth of knowledge as well and so we're committed to providing both Mm. i'm thinking back to my time as a teacher and that there were moments where the non-negotiable was your kids are going to score you know, on the AP exam, you know, fours and fives consistently, 90%. And I'm just thinking, Richard, how marvelous it would feel if I were thinking the non-negotiable, or if I understood the non-negotiable to be, my kids all have toolboxes that have lots of tools with them that they can employ at different times. That's a totally different thing, right?
1: It is. And
0: acknowledge,
1: though, that those other goals, those other metrics, you know, we're an IB school and it's important that our students perform well on the IB exam because Mm -hmm. it's a factor for college entrance. What I want most of that IB experience is a thinker. Yeah. Somebody who is more sophisticated in the way they think. And I believe that if they demonstrate
0: that sophistication, they will score well. Yep, That's awesome. Okay. So Richard, you shared with me that you would love to launch a companion book to Ted Dintersmith's What School Could Be, which inspired this podcast, which you would call What Leadership Could Be. And I wonder if you would indulge me in the hypothetical related to my home state of Hawaii, which has eight major islands, but just one school district, the Hawaii Department of Education. And within our DOE, there are 15 complexes that encompass the eight islands with roughly 300 public schools. And I wonder if you could wave your magic wand and outline an approach to leadership that might turn Hawaii into a deeper learning hub of the Pacific, like what are the first steps towards a playbook focused on what leadership could be in these islands? I know, hard question, <laughs> big question. That's a, a lofty, <laughs> lofty
1: question. For me, I think it's really, really essential from a leadership perspective that leaders are grounded in practice. They need a theoretical understanding of things, but they have to understand the physical, emotional heartbeat of a learning institution. And so they have to be present inside of it, mm-hmm. visibly present, experiencing it along with students, along with teachers mm-hmm. is critically essential. And I don't think our development, our systems approach leadership education in any way, shape, or form that way. Mm. Uh, We have a series of courses that you take. Yes, you have to understand management. You have to understand budget and those kinds of things. But when it comes to actual practical application, we kind of throw administrators into the the pond and say, swim. Yeah, And you kind of just figure it out along the way. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a fundamental flaw, obviously, in providing Mm -hmm. such a lack of guidance and support and mentorship through the learning phase of leadership. Certainly in those early phases, as, as leaders are developing all of the strategies and approaches that they're gonna use it, there's no difference in that toolkit for an adult and for a leader to have a series of tools to deploy at the right time and the right way to navigate and leverage decisions that benefit students and that grow teachers and that support families. All of those strategies those are really critical approaches that a leader must take Mm-hmm. And I don't think we really prepare
0: administrators for that. So would it be fair to say, like going back and referencing something that you said earlier, the proverbial pulling the the faculty member out of the classroom for nine days or some number of weeks? I guess I sort of feel like over the last hour, we've been talking as if there's Richard and then there's the faculty. But in fact, you have a whole sub-layer of administrators. Is there a similar sort of process at Graded where the proverbial pull from your work for nine days to immerse yourself in the actual work of deeper learning, does that happen for administrators as well? And is that part of the formula, the secret sauce that we're talking about here? Well, it's
1: important to note that when we began the training for teachers, the first set of training we did without administrators present at all, we Mm -hmm. wanted only the coaches and the head of our deeper learning Mm -hmm. to be there because we wanted teachers to be vulnerable about what they didn't know and what they were uncomfortable and scared about Mm -hmm. without the concern that this was some type of an evaluation of their ability. Ah, We're asking them to do things that they had never done before. And we wanted trust to be built Yep. But later, we embedded all of our leaders into the Deeper Learning Foundations course. Mm. And they took the course alongside teachers and with teachers. And then they had their own problems of practice that they were working on. And their coach was our chief learning officer. And so they went through that same coaching process and experience. And as challenging as the administrative job is day to day and the other things that pull you away, one of the other reasons that the professional growth and feedback model was built into... Our new teacher observation plan was because teachers were craving for more administrative presence in their classroom mm. they wanted more feedback about their practice and teaching and they wanted to know if i've made all these changes am i doing it right am i doing it well right that's a powerful message about a relationship that they want um, and that administrators need to provide to build and grow the program yeah
0: that's awesome So two more questions, Richard, before we bring this awesome conversation to a close. Last year, I read three books that rocked my world. The first was The Good Ancestor by Roman Krasnarek. The second was The World Becomes What We Teach by So While. And the third was Reopen to Reinvent by Michael Horn. And there is a through line in all three, I think, that suggests the purpose of education served by a deeper learning pedagogy is to educate multiple generations of what Chris Narek calls good ancestors and Zoe Weil calls solutionaries, which future generations will look back on and appreciate for the wisdom of their actions. So I wonder what you think about this idea and how graded is educating good ancestors? Like what are the most powerful reasons, moral imperatives, if you will, even, for caring about future generations? And how do we get those reasons into the missions and visions of all schools?
1: I love that term, solutionary. What a great way to visualize what somebody can become. Yes. That's powerful. I think fundamentally, in our vision statement, we speak to this about the ability to positively impact the world. And in fact, when I meet with families and provide open houses, I talk about this a lot, about we can see a lot of evidence of people impacting the world. Yeah. But what I'd rather see and see demonstrated by graded graduates are ways in which they're positively impacting the world. Now, that doesn't mean that it's only through the lens of a sustainable earth or other things. It, it can be through building a business and hiring people and, and, and building livelihoods but there are ways that we can do those things in deliberately positive ways that we're adding to the value of society and to mankind. I think it's fundamentally a core moral imperative of education. And I think if you go back and read historically and some of the great educational philosophers, you don't, you don't see that lived in the same sense of mm. why education really was developed in the first place to build character in education in individuals. To be part of an educated c- citizenry. Mm. And that, I think, is important and fundamental to why, why we exist, why schools exist today, needs to reflect that.
0: Mm. You know, there's a wonderful moment in that video that we've talked about a couple of times in that 16-minute window into your think tank, where Michael Nachbar, who's the executive director of Global Online Academy, and it was one of your invited guests and was actually one of my podcast guests, where he said something that also sort of arrested me in the moment. He he wondered out loud to everybody, who is that graded graduate walking across the stage? The the question was that mm-hmm. simple, yeah? Mm-hmm. I'm not really asking a question. I guess, I don't know. It was pretty interesting to hear him wonder that out loud, and it feels very sort of North Star-ish as a question, right? It very much did. And in fact, that that, that was one of the statements that really lingered in us
1: mm. after they left. And when we began to design where we were headed, we kept asking ourselves that. Yeah. So what is that graded graduate? What what will that young person look like when they have all these tools and they're able to deploy them at their will? Yeah. And we continue to believe imagining a child that's say in second grade, who by the time they're in ninth grade has been practicing these things for nine years. Yeah. How much talent and sophistication they'll have in the ability to take control of their learning and to certainly hope to see that continue to, you know, grow exponentially.
0: Yeah. I love the idea of being really highly skilled at pulling out the right tool from the toolbox at the right time for the right reason. That's just a fabulous idea. So Richard, I had a very special someone in my life now passed on named Paul Doc Berry. And he was one of my teachers in high school and became a lifelong friend, a coach, a mentor, a spiritual guide. Oh my God, he was one of the funniest people on planet Earth. And I just loved him so much. And I love to end episodes by giving guests the opportunity to talk about giants upon whose shoulders they stand. So Doc Berry was my giant, and now I know that Craig Nelson was one of your giants. So who was or is Craig, and in what ways does his spirit live in you, Richard, as you go about your work and, and living your life and leading your graded community? Craig was and is, still is, an incredibly important mentor in my life
1: he found something, and I think others, a good friend of mine, Pat Oster, would say the same thing, that he found something inside people that was uniquely special, but mm-hmm. maybe not known to them. And he would pull that out and show it to you. And it created such a sense of confidence in myself and belief in myself. And and, and I found Craig at a time when I didn't have confidence in myself. I had been Mm. in a series of unsuccessful learning experiences through school, and I had just moved to this new rural community, and he was my new FFA advisor, mm. an agriculture teacher, and his ability to care, to take the time to truly care, was mm. really quite remarkable. I've lived my life, essentially, my wife would say I'm an eternal optimist, mm. and that some of that I think comes from his belief in me, and then thus my belief in others i want to i hope be able to pass on that sense of inspiration where i can find the things that really are special within people Mm. and then pull those out and help them uh, grow with those strengths Mm. we have a ton of weaknesses in all of our lives and if we spend our whole life trying to fix our weaknesses we'll probably get very little return for that but if we build on our strengths we can become really
0: remarkable people Mm -hmm. And Craig helped me do that. Wow, that's awesome, Richard. Let's dedicate this episode to Craig Nelson. And so we bring this epic conversation to a close. Thank you, Richard. You and Graded have put jet fuel in my tank for weeks, for months, for years. I'm absolutely positive. So really appreciate the time that you engaged me in the preparation work. And I'm just so excited to be able to get this episode out to people and have people understand Graded's story to a much greater extent. So thank you, Richard. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on the
1: show.
2: Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with leading-edge, innovative, and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org and follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Finally, listeners, One of the most important things we can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Thank you so much for listening.